But he said no, because he's an honorable man, so I had to download this one. From, so we'll see how it goes. Does anybody know who Brahmin is? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, this morning, we're going to be taking God's word from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the uh, passage immediately following what I did a couple weeks ago, um, beginning of chapter 3, so we have time to turn your Bibles there. This is God's word for God's people. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we who are so prone to harden our hearts at your teaching, who are so ready to ignore your word because we don't like what it says or maybe even especially we don't like the flawed and weak man who's sharing it. We who have just come off of a week of failing to love you as we ought and failing to love our neighbor as we ought, we ask you now by the power of the Holy Spirit to both forgive us our sins of complacency and to open our hearts to be receptive to what you have to say to us. Your word will not return void until it has accomplished the purpose for which you have sent it, Lord. And we ask now that it would stir our hearts to exalt the Savior, to promote holiness among your church, and light a fire in our hearts to serve you and devote our lives to you. And we ask all these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are, of course, starting chapter 3, a new chapter in the book of Hebrews with this passage. And with a change in the chapter comes a change in the topic, uh, or rather a change in the angle that the author of the book of Hebrews takes in explaining his topic. The first two chapters of Hebrews, uh, the author of the book labored to demonstrate with example after example from the Old Testament the supremacy of Christ in all things. And if you started in Hebrews 1.1 and have read until now, there's no possibility that as an honest person you could have escaped the truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme in all things. The opening first two chapters of this book, the author put Christ forward as the ultimate revelation of God. They put him forth as the creator and sustainer of the universe, as the one who is God himself in the flesh, the redeemer of a people, the one who suffered and who died to pay man's debt and bring to life all who would repent and believe savingly in him. In the previous chapter, chapter 2, Christ was also shown to be our willing and our loving helper. Those are two great words for somebody that's going to be our helper, willing and loving. It showed him to be the liberator of his people from the bondage of the fear of death and our merciful and faithful high priest, and a king and a lord, and all these things he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal and glorious Son of God, has come to us as a true human being to pay for our sins on a cross and bring many sons to glory. And in him, there is the offer of forgiveness of sin, 
of reconciliation with God for all people everywhere. There's a promise for eternal life and the removal of guilt. This is the gospel, and this is the good news that we should be joyfully sharing with everybody that we can, everybody that we bump into. You can be reconciled with God. Your guilt can be taken care of. You can have forgiveness. We've had two full chapters extolling the greatness and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and which ought to be enough to inspire our love and our awe and our worship and to change our lives. Like just apprehending these facts that we've learned so far about God from the book of Hebrews should change our whole outlook on, on life. These are two chapters of glorious truth, which bring us right to chapter 3, the first word of chapter 3, which is, therefore, 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 because of all these substantial and earth-shaking truths that we've come before in this book, therefore, because Yahweh has taken human flesh and stood with human feet on this earth, therefore, because God Almighty, El Shaddai, El Adonai, has made like us in every respect and is not ashamed to call us brothers, therefore. We say it so much that maybe it loses its significance and uh, perhaps we neglect to put it into practice, but the therefores in the Bible were put there as linking words with the subject matter that has come before them. Hebrews, like Romans, which uh, Pastor Jim's going through, like Ephesians and many other books of the Bible, has sustained arguments and themes which run through the whole book. Um, If we (laughs) we basically do what I do, where you take like one sermon a month, you're, you're, you're... you, it's, it's hard to keep track of how we're on this trajectory. There's, there's argument built upon argument. This is what Paul's doing in Romans right now. Um, we have to be able to consider what we've read before in the passage. We have to remember that we, uh, we can't just take a verse out of its context or we're going to fail to understand the message which God is trying to give us. It's like taking out an important line out of a letter or an email and then trying to understand the entire letter just from that one little sentence. And, you know, we wouldn't think about doing that with a letter from the IRS, so we shouldn't think to do that at all with a letter from the Lord God Omnipotent. So this has to be understood as we begin chapter 3 of Hebrews. This isn't an isolated text. This is, therefore, based off of all of chapters 1 and 2 that we've covered so far. In verse 1 and 2a, the first half of 2 of our passage read, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Therefore, holy brothers, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Or I put a question mark after that. Consider Jesus. Like, therefore, consider Jesus. Haven't we been doing that already? We've, uh, after everything we've learned, aren't we already considering Jesus? Haven't we been considering Jesus? Why is, this the, why is this the culmination of the arguments that we've had through chapters 1 and 2? Consider Jesus. In around uh, 2010 or somewhere around then, I decided that I hadn't read a lot of these really famous um, novels of American literature, and I thought maybe it'd be good to finally go through those, you know, be an educated individual. And uh, for, for some reason, I hadn't got to a lot of these, these, these books. So I made a list and in my late 20s decided to just sit down and read through these, these paragons of American literature, these things that they do classes on in college. And when I had finished reading through, I didn't go to college by the way, so I'm just guessing. Um, actually I did, I dropped out, so there we go. Um, I didn't get that far. 
when I finished going through this list, though, um, I felt a little let down. Like I was pretty disappointed in all of this. After all of the hype, after how everybody said all these things were just so paradigm uh, shattering and shifting with literature, I thought, you know, this is just a stupid book. Like, what was the big deal with this thing? I don't, I'm not going to name them because maybe you love them, but uh, some of them I just thought this was not that good. Um, and some of these books were by Nobel Prize laureates or Pulitzer Prize winners, and I just thought it was kind of dumb. What's wrong with everybody? It's kind of like, like jazz. I don't actually think there's actually anything in jazz, but people say they get it, and if you don't like it, you don't get it. Like, nah, it stinks. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> get over it. <laughs> Take your corduroy pants and get out of here. <laughs> An acquaintance of mine at the time, though, who was a published author, told me that some of these books were really, like, you had to have been there at the time to, to understand the significance of them while, while they were written. And, and I guess I get that. You know, every once in a while, somebody comes up to me and they say, they don't get why the Beatles were a big idea, or big deal, or, or Nirvana, or Jimi Hendrix. And I say, listen to what was happening before in music, and then listen to what was happening after. Like, but nowadays, it's just kind of mixed up. So maybe it's the same with, um, with these books. Where am I going with this? Um, after the first two chapters of Hebrews, with all of the astounding and glorious truths we've been learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the beginning of chapter 3, and the author says, therefore, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Like, is that it? Uh, is this where the argument goes? After all of the hype and all of the praise of the first two chapters, you just said this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter from Galilee, is one and the same with the Yahweh who led the Israelites out of Egypt. And then you say, therefore, consider him? Well, yeah, this is, a, this is what he means, because it means more than simply think about Jesus. The Greek word used here means to observe fully or to give considerate attention to it means to give a considered object your fixed attention, like you're, you're, like you're making a chess move or you're engrossed in your favorite hobby, where this is what your mind is set on. It's not just a peripheral thing buzzing around you. And quite helpfully, um, the NIV, if you've got an NIV, says fix your thoughts on Jesus. Instead of consider, it will say fix your thoughts on Jesus. And now we begin to understand. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Therefore, since Jesus is all of these things that we learned and seen from the first two chapters, set your mind on him. Make him your daily thought and your nightly dream. Define your life by him and his commandments. Let everything else fall into its proper place and put King Jesus on the throne of your heart. So in what, matter, in what manner do you love your spouse and your children? You fix your thoughts on Jesus and love your spouse and your kids after the kind of sacrificial, serving, giving, and forgiving love with which was Christ first loved you. you know, think of Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How do you behave in the workplace, even the workplace where there's no other believers and maybe even the environment is decidedly hostile to Christianity? You fix your thoughts on Jesus, who is your ultimate boss, and you be his sales rep. Fix your thoughts on him and be a light in the darkness of the world, just as Jesus came to be a light to a world that rejected and crucified him. Jesus encountered a hostile audience. How do you live in relationship with the civil government, with injustice, with discrimination, with hatred, with war or greed, wealth or power, and everything else under the sun? You fix your thoughts on Jesus 
and follow him, remembering that if you've been saved by him, you are now his ambassador and you are representing your king to an unbelieving world and make no mistake, they are watching. And what can bring us to a place where we actually live like this? Here's, here's the disconnect. We've heard it said the farthest distance known to man is the distance between here and here, where you take an intellectual truth and you bring it out and say, this is how I actually live, and this is how I live it uh, experientially, not just, not just knowing this head knowledge. How do I get from, I know what Christ calls me to be in a community with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to this is actually how I live in community with, with the, our, our non-Christian culture or with my brothers and sisters in Christ. You can only do this by knowing that Christ is better and that Christ, knowing this about him, can break you free from the cords that are tying you down. What can bring us to this place where we gladly lay down our lives, where we lay down our agendas, where we lay down our fears and our prejudices? Only by having a greater vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this before. I can't remember whether it was a Sunday message or one of the Tuesday night classes, but there's a sermon by a uh, I think it's Thomas Chalmers, but he called it the expulsive power of a new affection. He says that our affections, like nature, hate a vacuum. You're always worshiping something. There's always something that's highest in your, in your desires and in your loves. And if you take something else out, if you say, uh, you know, I'm going to hate guitar now I'm, because it's, I love it too much, I'm not going to do it, something else is going to fill the void. I think this is why, and I don't know this, but I think this is why a lot of people that have addiction issues, maybe they can get off alcohol, but they're addicted to cake or whatever, or something like that. We have to kick the idols of our hearts off of the thrones, but something has to replace it. And that something has to be Christ. We were all created for the purpose of worshiping God. We are worshipers by who we are, what our being is. We will always worship something. And your life must be defined by proper worship, by worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the only way that you're going to be able to look at all of these things, all of these injustices, all of these things that have happened in your life and say, I'm going to choose Christ. Why? Because Christ is better. And you know that you're going to spend all of your money and all of your time, or most of it anyway, on the things which matter to you most. You've heard of Ricky Gervais. He's the British comedian and a, a pretty um, vocal atheist. And he also hates kids. But he was saying in one of his uh, stand-ups, you know, I don't see what the big deal with kids is because they cost you on average $200,000 in their lifetime and they never pay any of that back. And I'm thinking... If it costs a lot more than that, Ricky, um, I'm already halfway there with, one, with my uh, six-month-old. Uh, but it, it, what is that? What is that money? <laughs> Don't care about it. There's nothing that I would hold back from, from our, my kids, and it's probably the same for you as well, because we love them that much. That's where they place. Now, consider Christ. If you love Christ as much as your kids, or if you love him more than your kids, what's your life going to look like? What are you going to leave behind? In order to fix your thoughts on Jesus, you have to know and believe that he is who Scripture says he is and that he is supreme over all things, that he's thought everything through. You're having a bad day, things are going wrong in your life, God already knows. He already thought it all out. You don't have to tell him. You can ask him for the grace to get through it, but he's got you. You can have comfort in that. It's like when you're the people are on, the, on a jet airliner cruising around and they hit turbulence. One person can be safely asleep and one person can be just gripping the seat. They're all, if, probably they're both going to land safely. It's not going to, them being afraid or them being confident isn't going to change the outcome. It's just going to change the ride. Well, Christ is captaining our ship to its home port. Are you the shaky person or are you the one who has calm because you know Jesus, because you are, uh, have your minds fixed on him? 
You know, if you read the, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, um, recounting his journey from being a slave in the American South to being a free man and a very influential abolitionist and writer and speaker, you'll be surprised at the lack of bitterness and vitriol in his book. There's no hateful or bitter language in his writings. He calls evil evil, he doesn't excuse it, but he doesn't show malice or slander in his writings either. I mean, how is this? With 13 years old, he became a Christian. And he was able to not hate the southern slave owners under whom he suffered as chattel slave property of unjust and unworthy men because he recognized the truth of God's word and he lived in response to that truth. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And Jesus said, if anyone would follow him, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow him. That's self-denial. Deny yourself and follow King Jesus. And this is the opposite of what you hear preached in American culture today, which is all about you and your rights and your entitlements and your privileges and your stuff and your comfort and your money and your tiny tinsel kingdom. Jesus says, lose your life for my sake if you wish to truly find it. For what is it going to profit you? What gain are you going to get if you actually do get everything you want in this world, maybe even the entire world itself, but you lose your soul? How can we live like that? How can we live where we're denying ourselves and taking up the cross and following Jesus? By having this vision of something greater than what the world can offer. By knowing that living, the living God, through his son Jesus Christ, gives us relationship with him. Like Paul understood in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He considers his, his old life gone. That, that old person has been crucified with Christ, and now there's the new man living in Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again, Philippians 4, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. For the original hearers of the book of Hebrews, this would have been a, a, an especially crucial call for them as we've said before in, in previous messages, and I'm sure you haven't forgotten because you're intelligent people, the, most of you, the original readers, I'm not going to name names, but I can give them to you after church if you want them, <laughs> starting with me. The original readers of this letter were Jews who had recognized the long-awaited Messiah, or Christ, and had, they had come to his people. They had recognized the promised Messiah for all the Old Testament was here, and it was Jesus of Nazareth, and they believed in him. For them, they were, at this time, they were actually truly beginning to understand what it meant by picking up their crosses and following Jesus. It meant picking up their crosses because the heat was starting to get turned up with persecution and it was starting to get hard to actually be a Christian. There was a temptation for them to go back to the old covenants so where they wouldn't face the trouble of being Christ followers anymore. They could just go back to the synagogue, go back to their friends, go back to their old jobs. The temptation was to deny Christ and to choose the comforts of this world rather than the reproach of Christ. And there's this temptation for us as well. And, and make no mistake, to follow Christ is to embrace the reproach of Christ. 
Um, Paul says, and I think it's 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. All of you. And in Hebrews, later on, we're going to get to it. I think it's in chapter 11. It says, Moses chose the reproach of Christ over the fleeting pleasures of Pharaoh's palace. He could have stayed. He could have had wealth. He could have had anything he wanted in the world at the time. He chose the reproach of Christ because he had a greater vision of Christ and knew that just these things were ashes and dust in the long run. Our world, our, our culture of narcissism, as it's been called, calls us to worship ourselves and to do whatever it takes to not deny ourselves or our urges or our impulses. It calls us to live our lives seeking our own gain or our own status, um, to pursue possessions, to pursue sex, power, and, and likes on social media. But all of these things are empty vanities which ha have no eternal value. Our world demands that we affirm its morality. Our world will not tolerate the Lord God's teachings on marriage, on the sanctity of human life, on sexuality, on gender. And the pressure to conform to the world is increasing in our country. And it would be easier for many of us to go back to the world, as many churches and denominations and professing Christians are doing. And what will keep us following our king, even as it begins to cost us? What's going to make you choose jail for Christ's sake? What made millions of Christians throughout the history choose death instead of renouncing Christ? And this one guy, um, this is in Christianity Today, I believe, um, he estimated, I don't know how he did it, but he estimated that there were something like 70 million Christians that have been martyred for their faith since the time of Christ. Um, that's, a, that's a lot. What made all these, if it's true, what made these 70 million folks say, I'm going to choose horrific death instead of denying Christ and having comforts in this world? We fix our thoughts on Jesus. Fixing our thoughts on him and remembering who he is and what he has done, and that he is ruling over his creation even now, and knowing that he has already defeated death. And the worst thing that this world can do to you is send you home early from your assignment of, as an ambassador. We fix our thoughts on Jesus. But there's another reason given for why we fix our thoughts on Jesus. We look at verses 1 through 4 of our passage. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. It says, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, there's a unity of identity with this admonition. The author doesn't say, hey guys, think about Jesus. No, he calls Christians holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. The author is appealing to his readers to consider Jesus not just on the basis of who Christ is, but also on the basis of who we are and who we are in relationship with Christ and with each other. Hebrews 2.11, which we looked, covered in a previous message, was that the June 25th message? I can't remember. But the author says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. To be sanctified in this context means to be set apart for holy use. Uh, we've been separated from the world 
by God as new creations. We aren't what we once were. Think of Paul. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Again, I've been for, I forget what lies behind and I press on. If you're in Christ, the old you is gone and you are a new creation. You have a new identity. You, we are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And you can write that down on your spiritual, gift or spiritual birth certificate, have it notarized, stick it in your firebox, because that's what we are, and we are, and Christ calls us brothers and sisters. Therefore, on the basis of who we truly are in Christ, his holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, we fix our thoughts on Jesus. The Bible as a whole, um, repeats this reasoning quite often. It's really quite beautiful in Scripture. You don't get these places where it just says, do this or else. Uh, most often in Scripture, and I actually can't think of exceptions at the moment, that's why I'm saying most often, but the Bible first says, this is who you are. On the basis of who you are and what God has done for you, therefore act differently. This is where you are in Romans. Paul has spent all of these chapters telling you what God has done for you, who you are, why it was necessary for God to do what he did. And then finally, 12.1, he says, okay, now here's how you live. He spent all those chapters before. So the Bible does this quite a bit. It will say in Colossians and Ephesians and Romans, even in Exodus and many other places, because of who you are as God's chosen people, live as you are God's chosen people. Act according to your new nature. Uh, the Apostle Peter shows us this very argument in behavior from identity in, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, where he writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the identity argument that I was just talking about. Peter says, because you are God's people who have received mercy from him, because you are a people now, because you have um, been blessed with God, live in accordance with your identity. Live in keeping with your new nature. And the author of Hebrews says in our passage, because you are a holy brotherhood who share in a heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And you've heard this uh, illustration many times, I'm sure, but the, the children in the royal family in England are regularly told, remember who you are before they have a, a public engagement is to remember who you are and what you represent. You don't live under yourself. You have, you have an entire uh, dynasty that you are representing, and that's why it's always all over the front pages and everything when one of the royal family behaves poorly, because for some reason, after all, if we learn in history, we expect better from a king. We expect better from a royal. We are Christ's ambassadors. We don't represent ourselves. There's a sash on us that says, Ambassador for Christ. You're not living for yourself. When you behave badly out in the community, you're showing people this is what followers of Jesus look like. So if you're going to drive poorly, don't put a Jesus fish on your car. No joke? That's why Pastor Jim says he doesn't do it. <laughs> you know, we've spent... The Christian is told the same thing. He says, remember who you are. 
Remember who Christ is. You also have a much greater and a much higher calling than meaningless and petty self-centeredness. So live according to your identity and fix your thoughts on Jesus. I know it might surprise you or not, but we spent the majority of our time together just on the first verse of this passage, which again shows you just how deep and edifying even a small portion of God's word can be. Yet the author of the passage, the book of Hebrews, he spends the majority of his focus on the middle of this passage. So let's look again, verses 2 to 5. After saying, consider Jesus, the author says, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as his servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. There is a lot more in this passage than even we have time this morning to cover, yet the main thrust of the argument should be clear to us. Jesus, who was declared to be supreme to previous revelations and superior to angels in chapters 1 and 2, is shown here to be superior to Moses as well. That might not seem like a big deal to us, being a, living as 21st century Americans who are probably, if not entirely, um, Gentiles or non-Jewish, but we must again remind ourselves of the context of the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because that's who the original readers were. Again, they were Jewish Christians who had recognized Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah, and who, in the face of persecution, were in danger of abandoning the profession of Christ and returning to Judaism. To Jews of all ages, Moses is an incredibly significant figure. I was trying to look at the thesaurus, like, is there a proper set of words I could use to properly explain how big of a deal Moses is to the Jewish people? He's the one who hand-delivered God's law to the Israelites. He uh, led them out of Egypt. He spoke with God face-to-face, is what the Bible says, or mouth-to-mouth in the literal translation. And he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Along with Abraham and Elijah, there's no greater figure that the Jews have than Moses. And here, the author of the book of Hebrews says that Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, Yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is faithful over God's house. Just as uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is worthy of more fame than falling water, so Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because Jesus is the builder and Moses is clay. Moses was a big deal. This is the, the, the argument that he is trying to emphasize. He's not trying to say Moses is less. He's not saying don't you know, uh, emphasize Moses. He's saying... Moses is really great. Christ is even greater. This should, this should elevate the, the stakes a little bit. Moses was a big deal, and Jews of all time are correct in honoring him, yet he was faithful as a servant, as a creature, doing the will of his master. And to, to underscore or reiterate this claim of the superiority of Jesus over Moses, the author also adds in verses 5 to 6a, now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the master. Moses was the creature. Jesus is the creator. Moses was part of the house. Jesus built the house. And and moreover, 
did we catch what was at the end of verse 5? He says, now Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In what way was Moses faithful? Moses testified about Christ. In the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, we see Jesus speaking to these unbelieving Jewish religious leaders because he did that a lot. And he's scolding these religious leaders for not believing in Christ from the Scriptures. So again, he scolds the religious leaders because although they read and although they knew the Scriptures, our Old Testament, they did not believe in Jesus, who the Scriptures are written about. It's like reading Moby Dick and missing the whale. Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you see, Moses was a servant in the house, and he was testifying about the coming Christ, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And the religious leaders read Moses, but they denied Jesus Christ. They rejected him, and they had him crucified. But he was raised from the dead. And now, the author of Hebrews writes to Jews who did believe in Jesus, that great as Moses was, Moses was only a servant who wrote about Jesus Christ. Therefore, since Jesus Christ has been established as greater than Moses, these Jewish Christians have all the more reason to fix their thoughts on Jesus because that's what even Moses had been doing. Our passage opened with the word therefore and tells us to fix our thoughts on Jesus because of one, how great and glorious the supreme and supreme the Lord Jesus Christ is, as was demonstrated in chapters 1 and 2. Second, because of who we are as born-again holy brethren who share in a heavenly calling, and third, because the great prophet and leader Moses, who brought the law down from Sinai and spoke with God face to face, was Christ's servant and testified about Christ. And having established this solid understanding of the supremacy of Christ over Moses and encouraging us to keep our thoughts fixed on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our high confession, the author then closes the passage with this, verse 6b, second half of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. This is another one of those things which I think it's easier if you just kind of do your, your chapter a day and read through the Bible, you miss that. And you are his house, and we are his house. There are many wonderful images in the Bible used to describe the people of God, his church. We're called Christ's bride, we're called Christ's body, we're called the branches which are attached to the vine, and so on. And here we are told that we are Christ's house. And when I saw this verse, I got really excited because immediately all these other passages popped into my head, like Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians 2 and others. But uh, then I started realizing that was like another 10 pages. So lock the doors, we're staying for it. Um, the Apostle Peter helps us understand this. And what does it mean that we are Christ's house? In 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've taken images from a couple places in Scripture. We see Jesus described as the cornerstone. He's the first stone set which determines how the rest of the edifice is going to be built. 
the apostles are the foundation, and then all of us are the blocks being built up into this, into this building. Peter says, you are living stones being built up. God is building a house, and we are that house. The house is Christ's church, and he is building it, and he has been building it, he is building it, and he will be building it until the final day when he puts the last touch on it and he calls it good. One commentator wrote, if this is what Christians are, God's house, then we should ask, for what reason does one build a house? Now we might say that one builds a house for his glory, and that certainly is in view here, and a majestic estate certainly does show the riches and the skill and artistry of the one who can afford to build it. But the main reason one builds a house is to live in it. And what a marvelous truth this is, that God has redeemed us that we might be his own dwelling place. It is a marvelous truth. And I would say a lot more about it, as I said, but our, our time is up, and it's a subject which is worth a lot more than just five minutes at the end of a sermon. Yet consider what it means. Christ is building his church. He's added you to it. You are a stone that has been chosen, that is, has been and is being fashioned and placed in this house that Christ is building for himself. And doesn't that give us all the more reason to fix our thoughts on Jesus, to fix our thoughts on the grand architect who works all things according to the counsel of his will? This is why, you know, um, I, was, I was watching some video on YouTube. It was about this guy that was... Uh, getting kicked out of a mall for sharing gospel tracts, and the, the, the mall cop that was kicking him out, who looked very much like um, Paul Blart. It was kind of funny. No segue, though. But he said, uh, he said he's a Christian. He says, I bet I'm a better Christian than you. Did you know the Bible said, it doesn't say anywhere that you have to go to church? I was like, well, later on in Hebrews, we're going to see where it says, don't deny the gathering. We know from Scripture that there's commandments you cannot follow except in community, but to say the Bible doesn't tell us to go to church is to completely miss what a church is. All of these images are talking about unity and oneness. We are the church. And if you take a brick and you throw it into the woods, that brick might be part of a building, but it's not where it's supposed to be. The building is together. The body is together. The bride is together. The branches are attached to the vine. This is just a, such a significant concept for us in terms of who we are, why we need to fix our thoughts on Jesus, why we take communion together and not just on our own somewhere because we are celebrating as a body participation with Christ's body. There is a unity here. And we have every conceivable reason to fix our thoughts on Jesus and devote our entire lives to him. And we've been shown so much about Christ's glory and, and the wonder of who he is. And yet, our text closes with a warning. Verse 6b again. And we are his house, if... And I, I print it out. I tell you, I like to print out my passages. I go to Bible Gateway, print out three copies, and then just highlight them and, and scribble all over them when I'm making a message. This one got a lot of circles. There's an if. We are his house, if... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is a warning to those who are tempted to turn and to neglect Christ, to those who don't fix their thoughts on Jesus. You are only Christ's house if you hold fast your confession of hope. And that's, that's a hard concept for us to grasp. Hebrews, and indeed the whole Bible, has severe and terrifying warnings for those who neglect Christ or deny him in their thoughts and actions. 
we, we already saw one of these passages in um, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, which was a previous message, and there's going to be others in our study of Hebrews as well. This brief warning at the end of our passage is, is just a lead-in to the next passage, though, of verse 7 and following, which we'll look at next time I, I speak, Lord willing. For now, in closing, we repeat the main point of today's message. Fix your thoughts on Jesus because of who he is, because of who you are, because he is superior to anything the world can offer you. The world will offer you good things, pleasurable things, things that you desire. It will hold these up and say, look, isn't this wonderful? It will try to lead you astray. The sin that knocks you down is the sin that you think is, good, is a great idea. Uh, Proverbs tells us, you know, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The world's going to try to steer you astray. How can you keep from getting off of the path? Fixing your thoughts on Jesus. Fixing your thoughts on that North Star, which is not going to change. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Amen. Our Lord, our God, cause us to fear you with a holy fear. To not take you lightly or flippantly. Cause us to hate sin and to love you. And cause us to live lives that honor you and exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, convict us of sin. Destroy our pride and humble our hearts. Incline our hearts to your word and not to selfishness in the building of our personal kingdoms. Forgive us for the many ways in which we choose the idols of our culture over you and view the comforts of America as superior to the glory of the everlasting God. Let us lay down our lives for you, for your name, for each other. Let us be light in this community. Cause our unloving hearts to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and the community in which you've placed us to be your witnesses and ambassadors. Forgive us for the ways we've shown rudeness and patience and a lack of kindness and compassion to the people of Port Townsend and cause us to be salt and light in this city just as King Jesus has commanded us and just as you were when you came. Let us love the Lord our God with all of our being and our neighbors as ourselves. Let us follow our brother and our king, in whose name we pray. Amen.